Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 401. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 401 you're listening to. My guest today is the return of Grammy-winning producer, engineer, mixer, Matt Wallace. Matt, of course, known for Faith No More, Maroon 5, OAR, The Replacements, many, 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 many artists. And uh, yeah, he's making a return appearance. Episode 45 was the last time he was on. So 45, 401. Yeah, that was a long time ago. But I'm glad he's back. We're going to catch up and uh, see where he's at these days. And uh, he's still in Los Angeles, but uh, a lot has lot has changed since we talked last. Uh, but yet, at the same time, a lot has really stayed the same. So he's still making records, and uh, Dolby Atmos is a part of the equation now. We'll talk all about it. I don't want to give it all away. Anyways, really glad to have him back. Always love talking to Matt. And that's it. So Matt Wallace coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about managing your money. As audio professionals, we are a particular breed of human being that obsesses about how a cable is wrapped, how a Pro Tool session is laid out, making sure we have just the right attack and release on the compressor. We do endless research about the gear we're gonna buy, but some of us, when it comes to our money, which directly affects our business, fall very short. You know, it's very easy to set up a studio. Honestly, most of us can have the wherewithal to rent a building, gather our friends to help us build a spot. Acquiring the gear, of course, just comes like second nature to most of us. We're really good at that. Setting it up, getting everything acoustically just right, hiring acousticians, making sure those speakers are in exactly the right place. But this money thing, man, Some of us just suck at this, quite honestly. We can get it all up and running and maybe we can bring the bands in, but when it comes time to budgeting, to paying taxes, to saving and not overspending on gear, we just are not always the best at this. Now, I'm not saying that all of you are like that, but many of you, and I have been there, have done it. So look, let's just cut to the chase here, friends. You have got to put the same attention and detail and passion. I know, it's hard to do that sometimes, into managing your money. At the very least, you need to sit down at least once a month and figure out what's coming in and where it's going. Make it a habit. Try to put an hour in, try to put two hours in. If you start with that, I think that you'll start to see results. And I think... Honesty and transparency with yourself is the starting point. You know, I know we like to ignore ignore the things that make us tense, but sometimes just facing the issues that we might have financially is a great way to go. Conquer that fear. Start at least with getting yourself something to track your money. I've talked about QuickBooks self-employed before, 
and you can use a spreadsheet if you don't want to pay for anything. Hell, you can use a Google Doc. Tracking it, being honest about it, and then figuring out like, okay, this is what is happening right now. You kind of like a state of the state of the state, state of the studio, if you will, right? You figure out this is what is coming in. This is where it's going. Oh, I don't like that. I need to change how that, where that money goes. You know, if you at least make a simple spreadsheet to do that, you at least are aware of what is happening. Here are some thoughts uh, for you to consider. Obviously, you know, nothing from me is gonna come as gospel that you have to do this. And this is the only way. I'm still figuring it out too, people, right? Still trying to figure out what the best method is. It's always a work in progress, a system in flux. But, you know, let's just start from when you have money coming in, you need to think to yourself, well, what is it that I'm trying to accomplish here for the long term? And what are my expenses? What are my planned purchases for the future? And what do I intend to do in 5, 10, 15, you know, 40, 50 years down the road, depending on, you know, how old you are. So I think having that conversation with yourself first is key and also then tracking what is happening. I think that's super important. So when the money comes in, do you know where it's going to go? Does it have a home? Does it have a, a, a destination, if you will? Let's talk about some places the money could go. Well, first off, the IRS, unfortunately, in the United States and whatever uh, your tax authority is in your part of the world, that's a, that's a factor. Yourself, obviously, that's a huge factor. But also there's the things like saving for retirement, saving for rainy day or emergency type fund things. And obviously your expenses, your rent or your mortgage, your insurance, all of these things that go into whether it's your home studio or whether it's a, a facility that you have outside of your home. These are all factors. Track the date the money comes in, how much it is, where it came from. And then you can set up all the cells as the destinations of everything, you know, I just mentioned and anything you think of. So just do a test, you know, for every hundred dollars or thousand dollars that comes in, have a certain percentage go to each category. And then at the end of the month, you have a clear idea of where it's all coming from, how much you have in each category, and whether you need to adjust the percentages in each of those categories. And, and the percentage you put into those categories is up to you. I mean, you're the only one that can figure that out. Maybe you and, and your accountant or you know financial professional you consult with, but, and I'm sure many of you know this, one thing you can do in those cells, you could set up a formula so that, you know, let's say the income column is $100. And let's say you have a column for 40% uh, of that is going to go towards retirement. I'm just throwing numbers out there. Let's say the uh, the income column is in cell number C2. You would say equal C2 times 0.40, right? And that will give you the formulation for what is 40% of the total income in, in that column, which we're calling C2. You can lay the whole thing out so that each column has a formula that calculates what percentage you want to put in each category. And that, my friends, is just the, a very simplistic way to track it. At the end of the day, what I'm hoping that you do is, if you're not dealing with it, deal with it. It's like anything in your gear arsenal that needs attention. You'll take care of it if it's gear. 
but many of you will neglect it if it's financial because it's boring and it's sometimes it's not fun to deal with. And sometimes, you know, the numbers don't look good and it's, and it's easy to dismiss and procrastinate and just think, oh, I'll deal with that later or, you know, bury your head in the sand. Don't do that. Give your money the same attention that you give your gear. And I think that you'll be in a better place than you would, would have been otherwise. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Matt Wallace here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Matt. You were last on November 15th, sorry, November 2nd, 2015, seven years ago. And that was, I believe that was episode number 46 at the time. And now 
what are you up to now? What episode now are you at? You know, as we record this, I don't 100% know what the episode number is. I, this is in the past the 400th episode. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So a, lot, a lot's happened between 2015 and now here in 2022. That's quite a commitment on your part to keep it going. That's That's a lot. Yeah. It became a habit long ago, so I don't even think about it anymore. I just do it out of muscle memory and and that sense of commitment to the listeners who expect it to be there. Nice. So I listened to that full episode a couple weeks ago that that we did. (laughs) That's a commitment. And that that was fascinating to listen to based on what I know now. And for the audience, Matt and I have kind of reconnected since getting involved in Dolby Atmos because of our Dolby Atmos mixers network. Yep. So we're we're in a group of people. We're constantly talking with a bunch of different people that I'm sure the audience knows and and some people that have been on the show. But at the tail end, if you go to WCA number 46 with Matt Wallace on the Working Class Audio website, at the tail end of the, the blurb that I put, it says in 2013... Wallace started a live music project with Will Kennedy with the goal to help music fans discover the joy of authentic live performances. And you were doing live wow. live at Studio Deluxe. And there's a YouTube channel that accompanies that. So that that is something I want to talk to you about. And the other thing I want to talk to you about is you and I discussed the possibility of you almost giving up and just going back to construction back then. Wow, I even talked about it back then too, huh? Yeah, you did. Wow. Yeah, I think there was a year, it was probably 2017 or 16. I actually contacted people to sell my gear. I think I ended up calling Joe Barisi and a bunch of other people just saying, yeah, work's kind of slowed down. And, and you know, it's just kind of an uphill struggle, as you know, sometimes you, know, you work really, really hard to get the job and then you still have to do the job, you know? And while you're doing one job, you're actually out trying to find another job. And so it's, Challenging, yeah. So, I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with it because as most of us who've been doing this for a long time, without too much hyperbole or not too much of a woe is me, but it does feel like there is less fun and less money in what used to be a, a, a relatively lucrative profession and also something more fun because it was much more social. Mm. You'd run into friends at the recording studio. You'd bump into somebody at one of the studios with like a multi-room facility and, hey, what are you working on? Oh, come check out what I'm working on. And there's a lot of camaraderie. And also back then, because budgets were healthier, mm-hmm. you could camp out at a studio for two months and do all the tracking and the overdub. And it was kind of a gentleman's way of making a record. I mean, you still worked long hours, but you would go to a nice big room. Now those big rooms I use for like three days and we track drums and we come back to my place and do all the overdubs. So it's just a different era. And I, I think there are times I had to like work really hard to get successful with Faith No More. Then 10 years later, I'd work really hard to become successful with Maroon 5. And it just feels like it's an uphill battle all the time, you know, like even the Atmos stuff right now that I'm doing, I'm working a lot now, but it's nine months of concerted, deliberate reaching out to people at labels again and again and try not to be too much of a pest, mm-hmm. but also staying in their purview so that, you know, I get hired. But right now, Will and I have more work than we can handle right now. Now we're just, now we're overburdened with it. But six, nine months ago, it was just like pretty skinny. So now it's like, oh my God, now there's too much. And I think that whole phrase, feast or famine, unfortunately, is kind of appropriate, which is kind of too bad. I think I've asked you this because last time I, I saw you and Will Kennedy, I came down to LA and we went to this Mexican restaurant and hung out. And 
I think we talked about, you know, doing catalog work for Atmos is mm-hmm. is a challenge in itself because of older stuff done in older formats has its challenges for making sure all the tracks are there, like, you know, missing parts here and there. Yes. And changes in in tempo and speed because like maybe the in the mastering stage they hey it's a little sluggish let's speed it up just a little bit so you're trying to match something from way back when mm-hmm. the amount of money that you're charging to do those Atmos catalog mixes do you find that it's worth it to do that as opposed to chasing more modern stuff where the tracks are like readily available that's a good question I mean the the catalog stuff honestly takes a lot of time. For better or for worse, I think Will and I probably aren't the smartest tools in the shed in terms of making money per song. Because like, for instance, the, the B-52's Love Shack that we did, that was at least two days of work, probably more like three. Because mm. the tempo was definitely varied. And Will had to spend a lot of time trying to find the exact tempo. Either it was sped up during mastering. Or sometimes, I think, I think a lot of these 24-track tape machines where they do the transfer... Either that machine's out of speed or the machine it was recorded on. So, I mean, there's just a lot of challenges. And I think now modern stuff, people can send you stems and mixing from stems. It's like, oh my God, you're already at least 50% of the way there. Maybe like more like 75. Whereas say something, for instance, with the B-52s, we had to completely construct the stereo mix out of just the raw multi-tracks to match it. Because here's the thing with catalog stuff. They're beloved songs that people know inside and out which is different than mixing something that's new, like Frontline, you know, new releases, there's a little more freedom. Mm-hmm. But with catalog stuff, we found out when we played B-52 stuff to people, they're like, hey, you're missing this. And what about that? And like, oh, shoot, okay, I, I didn't even know that. So we spent a lot of time constructing the stereo mix. In the case of the B-52s, of course, Will and I are great. B-52s, Atlas. So we spread the whole thing out. And honestly, the whole mix kind of collapsed mm. because I think certain types of music or certain eras of music because B-52s is relatively sparsely recorded. Mm-hmm. There's a guitar, there's a bass, I think there's like a keyboard part and some horns, lead vocal and background vocals. And so there's not a lot of instrumentation. So when you try to spread it out, it kind of loses its center. So we had to kind of pull everything back to like a kind of an established center. Then we put the gang vocals behind us. We put the horns above us and things like that. So some stuff, I'm not sure if it was ever intended. It was definitely never intended for Atmos. Right, right. Absolutely. So that stuff was a little more challenging. And we spent a lot of time getting just the right tempo and dialing into those exact sounds, like even getting the snare and the kick sound, all that stuff, you know, really faithful reproductions of it takes a lot, a lot of effort, which is different than we remixed Faith No More's Epic. And because initially Will and I did it just for ourselves to get established as Atmos mixers, to have some things to play to people, we did whatever the heck we wanted because nobody paid us. We just did what we wanted. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about that is we had some freedom to kind of spread things out and Somehow the band and myself, or somehow we actually recorded music that really well folded out into Atmos. I mean, it actually sounded like we'd intended that just because it's such a panoramic track and there's like four rhythm guitar tracks and there's multiple guitar solo tracks and there's keyboards and everything. So that one actually spread out really nicely. There's some really good room drum sounds that we could spread out. And, and, and now when you sit in the middle of the room, you hear it, you go, Wow, I can hear the power of the band and it's all around me. Very different than the the B-52's Love Shack. So yeah, you know, as you know, some stuff mixes easier, some not, but we spend a lot of time on our mixes. It's not the financially smartest move we do, but we spend a lot of time to really dial it in. And as you are probably well aware, is that what sounds great in our room 
can sound pretty darn good off the Dolby renderer, but man, the moment it goes to the iPhone, it just, everything changes. Everything like changes. took our mix and messed with it. And that's, I, I think, for the audience that may not understand that, because when you make an Atmos mix on your speakers and you're running through the Dolby renderer and you're making these decisions, Tidal and Amazon will adhere to whatever decisions you made in the binaural mix Yes, for those listening on headphones. But when it goes to Apple, they ignore that information and therefore it changes how that sounds in headphones. Yep. Not necessarily in speakers, but in headphones at least. Yeah. And it's a big discussion in our group right now, you know, what the hell kind of thing. Well, I think the problem with it is that you have to decide what you're mixing for. You've got mm. two targets in the room, and we can throw the binaural and Amazon and Tidal into kind of the same pot because it sounds somewhat similar. Obviously, it'll never sound like it does in the room exactly, but at least it's a faithful reproduction. Like, yeah, that sounds like the mix. And then once it goes to Apple, as you mentioned, you know, they, they do change a lot of things. I think they strip away all of the binaural settings. They definitely do some EQ weirdness, and they definitely do a lot of reverb weirdness. You know, we're mixing a project right now, and, and to be really, really frank, in the room, it sounds great. Binaural sounds really good, and I listened on them before, and I, it just doesn't sound good, and it's just not a pleasant listening experience at all. And so we can tailor the mix to make the MP4 on the iPhone sound better, but then it obviously messes with our room mix and certainly the binaural mix. So because Apple's the one who's really kind of pushing this spatial audio thing, we kind of have to aim in their direction. But the problem is if we mix for those headphones and you listen in a room, it's going to sound not good. And also, I think Apple's going to change their playback system over time. I know they've already done it like two times in the last month, hoping that it will improve. So you know, if we aim for their mixes and they change it, our mixes can sound really bad. And that's the thing. So the problem with the bands is are they hear, they go, oh my God, this sounds terrible. It's like, I know, but, but listen in the room. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to hear it in the room. I know, but Apple's reproduction isn't exactly, we don't know how long it's going to stay that way. So I, it's really, really, really frustrating. It's super frustrating. Definitely a growing pain right now in the process, for sure. Oh, dude, it's it's really, really difficult. Like I say, we, we're, we're mixing this band I Prevail, who are super, super heavy, lots and lots of sound all over the place. And it took a long time to kind of convince their producer Tyler to kind of get on board with Atmos because you know, a lot of guys are like, hey, we like stereo. We, we don't need Atmos. Yeah. Well, your label wants it because Apple's asking for it. Okay. And we kind of try, try to get him excited about it. And like, come on, you know, let's check this out. And we get him in here. He listens, listens off the renderer with the headphones. He even listens on the binaural. Oh, this sounds great. Then we send on the MP4 and he just looks at us like, what the hell? It's like, oh, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll get there at some point and hoping that Apple makes some moves to to help us with mm -hmm. that. And I know my audience is going to like, their hair is going to be on fire when I say this, because I always say this about Atmos. I think the next step is people like Apple are going to introduce smart speakers that allow people to buy like four of these speakers in a package for a certain price that they could yep. spread around their room and totally get immersed in the speaker experience on, on that consumer level beyond a soundbar. I think so too. I think you're absolutely right. And because I thought about this some months ago, smart speakers, you can put them anywhere in the room and they will automatically balance themselves out. And then you, no matter what you do, you can just, you can move around every single day. Like I'm going to go to the living room, put them around. 
and it'll automatically readjust and you'll you'll be in the middle of Atmos. And I do think that that is where it's ultimately going. And I do think that in time, stereo will become something kind of quaint like mono, mm-hmm. but it's going to take a while. But because the, the, the immersive audio experience, when you really hear it in a room is mind blowing and something that I didn't expect. And that is that some songs, and I don't know why they become more emotional when you're sitting in the room and you can hear more of like the background vocals and you can hear more of the nuances and the intentions in the track. There's sometimes that I just go, wow, that's, that's super powerful. And I don't remember the song being like that. Yeah. And I mean, pointing to the icebreaker that I think we all play for people, mm-hmm. rocket man, right. you know, there's things in that song that now when I hear the stereo version, I'm like, Oh, you can't hear that. Whatever part yep. it is that you like, you can't hear that as well. And it doesn't have the same, emotional impact that the Atmos version does on speakers. Yeah, it's interesting. We When we did the uh, Atmos mix of Epic, the Faith No More song Epic, we did it and we had one of the product managers came over here and this is a guy who, he walked in and he goes, I'm really excited to hear this. And we're like, well, how come? He goes, he goes, I have literally heard this song 300 times. I know this song probably better than anybody and I love the song. I'm looking forward to it. We played it for him. It was his first Atmos experience. And it's, it was almost like that proverbial, like jaw on the floor thing. He was just like, I can't believe this. Oh my God, I can't believe this. Oh my God. I can't. And he's like, I'm hearing stuff I have never heard before. And he's asking me like, did you do some overdubs? Did you? I said, no. That's the original tracks from whatever it was 25, 30 years ago. Nothing has changed, but you can actually hear it because there's a lot of like orchestrated guitar parts where Jim, the guitar player is playing like a, a melody line. Then he plays a harmony to it. He plays a counter harmony. So it's almost like orchestration. And this guy from Warner Brothers, actually Rhino, he just says, oh, I, I can't believe I can hear stuff that I've never, ever heard before. And it's it's really something. So I think Atmos is the future. It's just we're in a weird transitory hump where it's not quite working in headphones yet. Not 100% for sure. So you and Will have been concentrating a lot on mixing. I mean, you've produced some great records. I mean, with Faith No More, as we're talking about, Maroon 5, done some stuff with The Replacements. So what about moving forward? Are you thinking about producing new bands and and really taking Atmos into account when you're doing that? You know, I've been asked that question before, and and honestly, I don't really know how anybody can take Atmos into account while recording for a number of reasons. We're still stereo people. That's kind of how our, our ears are built. And a lot of this stuff in Atmos, I really think is a product of mixing because with Atmos, you can't really track with Atmos yet. I don't think we have the processing power to actually be in a room, have all your objects all over the place, and then be able to play without any latency. So it's not like you can start building a mix and the musician can't sit in the middle of it and play and go, okay, I want my guitar to go around like this. You want to play? It's like, well, honestly, we, we don't have the processing power to be able to do that. You're going to have latency pretty substantially. And I just think it's like, it's something that's really coming around in mixing. And I guess in tracking, I don't know how I would track anything differently other than using like a Calrec sound field microphone around the drum kit and then trying to do something like that. Or, you know, you could put a microphone right behind the drummer, like a binaural microphone or head behind the drummer. But even that doesn't take into account what the whole picture sounds like. So, I mean, what about you? How, do, how would you put this into Atmos while recording or producing and recording? I think it just, it starts to get me thinking about maybe I would have been a little more conservative about drum miking, and now it makes me think, well, you know what? Let's actually expand a little bit, keeping in mind of where we would put these. You know, would we put these extra room mics in the rear, on the sides? Mm-hmm. Are we making overdub decisions that 
we wouldn't otherwise make. Maybe they're musically complementary, but in a stereo mix, they might get lost. But in an Atmos mix, you know, yeah. they might find their spot in the ceiling, for example. Yeah, I think there's a lot more room, quote unquote, room in Atmos to spread things out because basically every instrument could have its own speaker. So you really could put more information out there. And some of the stuff we're mixing that's super, super dense that honestly, I don't think works that well in stereo because there's too much information to be jammed into two speakers mm -hmm. is really improved upon in Atmos where you can really hear everything. And I think that's really terrific. As to drum room mics, oftentimes in mixing, most people actually do away with the drum room mics and they just use reverb because you can control it much more. You can just have the snare go into the room behind you and there it is. And it's really easy. So a lot of the drum room miking, I'm just not sure how viable that is, except for like moments where there's a fill or maybe there's a the tom-tom part where everything else is kind of pared down and there's minimal instrumentation, then you can actually feel like you're in the room. I guess it could work. Yeah, our, our buddy Ryan Ulate, who's in our group and who's been on the show, listening to his mix of You Don't Know How It Feels by Tom Petty, just the the weight of the drum kit that fills the, the back speakers, for wow. me, that's that's a good example of that to check out as a, as a reference point. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, there's possibilities, and I guess it's all up to the artist, the producer, and it's all subjective and yeah. could go a million different directions. Yeah, I think with, I mean, someone like Tom Petty, I think that kind of music can lend itself to Atmos more because it's usually very, very sparse production. There's not a lot of information. Yeah. And there's also not walls of distorted guitars. Once you get distorted guitars, <laughs> everything changes. Because you know what? We can all mix Steely Dan and sound like geniuses because Steely Dan is really pristine. There's no fuzz and it's very, very clean and clear. And it'd be hard to mess that up. But once you have heavy guitars in there, it really makes for very challenging mixing. And I think that's why the Tom Petty thing works so well as you described it. Because yes, you can open up the room. You can hear the drums in the room. If you have a really good drummer in a good room and there's not a lot of junk going on, absolutely that can work. Absolutely. But so much modern stuff, like the stuff we've been mixing is just super dense and there's so much going on. It's hard to imagine using the room mic sometimes. Yeah. Let's move on a little bit from Atmos because I want to kind of trail off of something you said earlier. So in 2017, you were like calling Joe and talking about potentially selling your gear. Right. I mean, ultimately, what stopped you from doing that? Oh, then I got more work. I mean, uh -huh. that's, that's just how it goes. It's like you hit the doldrums and you're trying to get some work. And you're like, oh, this sucks. You know, nobody wants to hire me for whatever reason or whatever. Mm. Yeah. For me, I just have times like that. And I go, well, you know, I've had a good run and maybe I'll get out of the way so the younger people can get in here and do their thing. And I'll just go do something else, you know, but it's almost like the moment I'd make that kind of decision, then all of a sudden I get more work. So it's just kind of one of those weird things. And that's happened before too, where I just go, yeah, I think I'm toast. Time to move on. It just kind of happens like that. But right now the Atmos thing is happening mainly because I've just put a tremendous amount of energy into finding work and just a lot. And Will and I just, we actually initially just pulled stuff down from the internet and had some stems. And our first mix of Epic was actually just from five stems from like Guitar Hero. And it actually was a really crappy sounding <laughs> mix, to be honest. And only because the folks at Rhino finally gave us the masters, then we could actually do a real mix. And did the same thing with Maroon 5 stuff because I don't have copies of that stuff either. So, so, you know, we kind of like built it, hoping that they would come. And now, of course, because I've been so persistent and consistent in reaching out to people like, you know, every three or four weeks, hey, got any work for us now? We just have more than we can really handle. So now it's a lot. <laughs> so, uh, so hmm. I mean, I think that's just because I put a lot of energy into this Atmos stuff because I really think it's so incredibly powerful and has such amazing potential once it gets straightened out, especially with Apple. I think Apple's got to, they got to figure their crap out, man, because it's super frustrating. Yeah. So when you come to these points of where you're like, okay, I think I'm going to quit, 
not enough work's coming in. I mean, I guess you're factoring in your overhead and what you're paying per month because you don't own your building, right? You rent your building. I rent my building, but my overhead's actually pretty low and it was intentionally so. I've been here for like 16 years, something like that. And my, my overhead's really low. So there, there are times when if, you know, if it's like, hey, I'm going to go work on some houses for a bit, I have no problem. Like I know other people who have very, very high overhead and they have to work or sell. And I, I can just kind of cruise. I'm super low overhead and I can leave things dormant for three or four weeks and do something else and come back and then all of a sudden be working again. So I've kind of intentionally established it that way. I've never had like a really expensive looking space. I've never put a lot of money into like mixing desks and things like that. I've got everything I need to do the job, but I, I don't have a lot of extraneous stuff. And you have a construction background, right? Well, my real background is musician first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And then I was uh, going to UC Berkeley to be an English teacher. It was actually aiming in that direction to be an English teacher, but I was making records in my parents' garage. So then once I graduated, I just figured, well, I'll just be a record producer. And then during some of those years during college, yeah, I did do construction as well. Yeah. And just for the listener, if you want to go back to that original episode, which I'll put a link in the show notes, you can hear like the whole path that Matt has taken to get where he's at at this point. So you can kind of get the background, but I bring the construction thing up because it's an alternative income for you if you wanted. And you you mentioned to me that you and some friends bought a house that you're fixing up and hoping to flip at some point. So talk to me about the role of construction in your life. Well, it's, you know, a lot of it's kind of born out of frustration with the music business. I mean, my recent forays into construction, just like people come to you with like a ball of yarn, a a toothpick and a paperclip say, hey, can you make an album that sounds like a million dollars? It's like, well, we'll try. So I think that intense frustration of people coming in with super low budgets and they want you to make a record that is as polished, tuned, in time, whatever the hell, as really expensive records. And you and I have done this kind of thing where we go, okay, well, I'll be the engineer, I'll be the producer, I'll be the tuner and the timer and all these things that that we have to do with modern recording these days. And so after a while, sometimes the budgets are so low, I'm just like, well, this is kind of dumb. I'm not going to do it for that low. So find somebody else to do it. At those points in times, I go, you know what? I got other things I can do with my time. So then I say, I'm going to go into construction. And I love working with my hands. I'm outdoors, seven o'clock till about noon or one. Then I come in and work in the studio. And I love building stuff. And the nice thing about construction is that nobody can argue when there's a wall up, there's the wall. Whereas sometimes with, you know, you're working with bands or labels or management, like, well, we're not sure if, if that's a course or can we do this or that? You're like, and you've already worked on that a million times. You go, you guys, this is the fifth version of a course. So what do you want to do? Where it's so subjective and frustrating. And the thing I noticed is that oftentimes the less money you're paid, the more hassle you have to deal with. Like if someone walks in with $5,000, they go, mix this song. And usually you mix it, they go, sounds great. Uh, maybe turn the vocal up a little bit. Oh, great. And then then you mix for someone for 500 bucks. They're like, hey, this is version number 12. Can we try something else? You're like, oh man, really? oh, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Totally. And I think that whole, you know it, we've all had to deal with that kind of stuff. And I think I'm getting to a point in my life where it's like, if you guys don't want to pay me like a decent amount of money, I'm not even asking for a lot like the olden days. But if you can't pay me a decent amount of money, then I'm just going to go do something else. And so for me, I just go do construction for a while. I love it. It's fun. Then, then all of a sudden people are like, we need to mix stuff. So now, of course, I'm pulled in two different directions because now I've got this house going, but I've got a lot of work now in, in Atmos mixing, So, which is really cool. So I'm really happy about that. It's just everything's kind of coinciding and coagulating at the same time. So it's a bit challenging. But I will say that in life, it's nice to always have 
your passion and the thing you do for your work or the thing you study in school. And as long as you have two different approaches in your life, you can kind of pick one or the other. I always tell my kids that, man, go to school for something, but then have like a hobby or a passion. And between the two of them, you're going to find work. And that's what happened to me. I went to school to be an English teacher. I was student teaching ninth graders, mm. but I was making records in my parents' garage. And so when I graduated, I'm like, well, I'm poor now. And I'll just keep making records on 8-track and being poor because otherwise I'd just be a poor teacher. So might as well stay in that direction. But I could always kind of go, well, I guess I'll go into teaching. Now I can go into construction. So It's nice too, because one thing can inform the other. I mean, I'm sure that there mm -hmm. are parallels in construction that can apply to record making and vice versa mm -hmm. that get you to think in a different perspective, say, when you're making a record. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious parallels are in construction, you need a really solid foundation before you can put up the walls and the roof. And the same thing with a song. You need a really sturdy song before you can start producing it and recording it. And I do that with, with bands all the time, you know, where we, we rehearse it for a couple of weeks and 30, 40% of the rehearsal is just sitting down with an acoustic guitar because with a loud band in it with a PA and a drum kit and big loud amps, everything can sound good or impressive or compelling. But once you strip it down to an acoustic guitar, you go, well, do we have a song here? Because once you have a song on an acoustic, then it really easily opens up to making a, a good recording. And I, I even work on good bands like the chording. Even if you have the same chords in the verse and the chorus, go, okay, listen, the chorus, let's do some inversions. And what I say is, at the very least, if you're at a campfire and someone says, can you play me your hit song, even without all the loops and the programming and the sequencing and the whatever it is, even on acoustic guitar with a voice and how you play the chords, it's like, oh, wow, that chorus actually opens up. Yes, because you've done some chord inversions, even though they're the same, very same chords. And then same thing with the melodies in the song. So for me, that's that's the equivalent of the foundation of a house. You know what I mean? Once you get the foundation built, then you can actually build walls and a roof. Same thing with a, mm. write a song on acoustic guitar. Oh, now we can put loops and drums and keyboards and guitars and things like that. And then we can make it a song. And it's interesting too to me because you have had these successes, but do you feel like the music industry operates with you, not just you, but everybody, as far as what have you done for me lately kind of mentality? Because otherwise they're like, oh yeah, Faith No More and Rune 5, what else do you have? Oh yeah, I mean, I've done a bunch of stuff since then. Nothing as popular as those things, but OAR and the replacements and like the OAR track Shattered was really a big, big song for them. They ended up playing at Madison Square Garden once that was a success. So I mean, I've had other things I've done. I've worked with Three Doors Down, a bunch of really cool stuff. But I mean, I'm not on, you know, I guess I'm not at the top of the pile like I have been when Maroon 5 was, was hitting pretty big time. So at least the record I did. So yeah, I think it is hard to maintain visibility in this business. And I think it's a natural outcome of being, you know, an older guy in the room. I think I was once the younger dude. You, know, you and I were both the young bucks. We're like, hey, I found this young producer and we're going to bring him or her in. Let's make a record. And there's an excitement to that. And as you get older, even though we have a lot of experience and, and sometimes some success, it's not as compelling as having a young person come in there and do it. And also young people will work longer hours and work for really, really cheap like we did. I mean, I, oh my God. The first Faith the More record I did on Slash Records, I kept my hours. I wrote all my hours down. I got paid $5,000 to engineer and produce that record. And I ended up making like $2.50 an hour making that record. But I was young. You know, I was like 26 years old. I was like, hey, I'm happy to do that. So I just think that the labels do want to find the new young person. And so do the bands. And I think it's natural that over time, old guys like me are just going to eventually go by the wayside a bit. 
certainly for production. Now for mixing, that's a whole nother story. People are calling me up and I'm doing a bunch of that now, mainly because I've worked really hard to get reestablished as that. Put a pin in the mixing thing for a minute because I yep. want to ask you, on the Faith No More records, you had points, I assume. Did uh-huh. you? Okay, okay. Yeah. So you got paid cheaply up front, but you did have some back end that, that came at you later. Yeah, but the first record I did on Slash, Introduce Yourself, I don't think ever, I don't did see any royalties from that one. That's what I did for like $2.50 an hour. So that oh, one didn't okay. really generate, you know, they had a song called We Care A Lot that was somewhat popular, but I don't think that was ever like a smash. Like, I don't remember getting mailbox money for that record. Not like the real thing or Angel No, Dust. the real thing. Yeah, the real thing was the one that that was like, oh my God, I can make a living at this. And I never thought I'd make a living at, at music, honestly. When I dove into it as a producer, engineer, mixer, it just, I mean, I was making a living, but it was really, really, really skinny for about eight years. Really skinny. And over time, I assume that money just kind of goes down further and further and further and further. Yeah, like the Faith No More stuff is kind of coming down to a trickle. The Maroon 5 money is still going, though. That record is, to make a long story short, I was offered a gig with another band. I was offered 50 grand to produce and mix a band called Days of the New. In this band, Maroon 5, I was offered 25 grand to mix and produce this record because it was a really low-budget record. And I, I was like, yeah, these are great songs. Unknown band, unknown label, Octone, had never put out a record before. Days of the New were on Columbia or something like that. But I just said, these are really great songs. But I did work with them in pre-production. And they had verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And they would just kind of noodle all the way out. They'd solo or whatever. And I said, you guys write some great bridges. And we can have a classic record that might make an impact and people want to cover your songs. And that was the big push for that. And I really believed in that record. That was the biggest long shot I ever took. And because it's so classic, I think it's sold like 14 or 15 million worldwide and it still keeps going. It's not even selling now. Now it's just being streamed. So yeah, I'm still making money from that record and that's 20 years ago. Wow. Side note. Yes. Adam Levine's aunt was Uh the fourth grade teacher for both of my kids. (laughs) <laughs> nice. <laughs> she would always bring that up. She was actually one of their favorite teachers of all time, which is nice. You know, nice. There's a special place for those teachers that are the favorites. I mean, you know, she will be loved. I think is up to like, I don't know, like six or 700 million listens or spins or whatever it is on, on Spotify or something like that. So you have great songs, well produced, I guess, and well performed. And also that band toured for four years on that record. I've never, ever heard of a band touring for four years on one record. That's what they did to break that record. And it's pretty ubiquitous. That's that's all over the place still. I still hear that stuff in supermarkets and everywhere else. Yeah. Plus it helps when Adam did that whole thing at The Voice and, you know, oh, that yeah. keeps you in the public eye. Yeah. That was the smartest movie he made for his band and for himself. And of course, for my royalty stream was for him to be on The Voice because that really kept them viable. And actually when they did Moves Like Jagger, that was their re-envisioning themselves and that was their second career was really from moves like Jagger forward because at that third record was already kind of starting to didn't, didn't really have much of an impact and that was the moves like Jagger that was added on after the fact that was their kind of rejuvenation of that band hmm. interesting Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. 
So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Now, the mixing thing, let's talk about that for a sec. Aside from Dolby Atmos, I've had this conversation with Tim Palmer before. He has talked about how in this day and age, with the way things work, low budgets, remote working, he does a lot of what you would call predicting, production and mixing. He'll get tracks and he'll add guitar parts or percussion parts, rearrange and cut and edit things around. Is that something that you find yourself in the position of doing or, or do you put yourself in that position? I don't put myself in that position because the problem is that when I'm getting paid low dough, that just means I spend more time on something and I'm already not getting paid what I'm worth anyway. So it's rare that I do that. I mean, every once in a while, if there's someone that's, I think typical, if, if you're working with somebody who's super cool or they're really, their heart's in the right place and they're really trying and like, hey man, we don't have any money, but you get a vibe from someone, then I'll, I'll help out. I've, I mean, I definitely have done the editing thing. That's pretty easy to do. I've certainly done tuning things when people have sketchy tuning or timing stuff, but I, I haven't really, other than laying in some percussion here and there, yeah, I can do that, but I certainly wouldn't play any guitars on anything unless that's something that some bands get pretty upset about. So you have to be really, really cool about that. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't usually do that. I understand that it works for Tim. I mean, I think part of the thing is like years ago when I mixed the first train record, there's a song called Meet Virginia. And I remember I was mixing this thing and Tim Devine, the AR guy, comes in and he goes, Hey, it sounds pretty good, but this song needs an acoustic guitar. I go, Oh, okay. Well, he goes, Well, you play guitar, right? I go, Yeah. He goes, Why don't you go ahead and play it? I go, I mean, I don't know, man. It's it's not really my song. He goes, Well, you just go ahead and do it. So I did it. And this is before cell phones, and the band calls me from the road. They're uh, on a payphone, like, "What the hell are you doing? Like, what do you mean? You're putting Ooh. an acoustic guitar on our on our record?" I go, "Well, didn't Tim tell you it was his idea?" They go, "No, he said it was your idea." It's like, "Oh, okay, great." Just uh, got thrown under the bus. <laughs> wow. So since things like that, I'm just really, really like. I mean, I understand their their feelings, of mm-hmm. course. I don't, I don't want to just throw stuff on their music without talking to them. Obviously, that's a really a big kind of exaggerated idea of what could happen. But yeah, I mean, if I need to play stuff, I'll do it. If people ask me, I will. But generally, I just pretty much mix. Might do some editing, sometimes do some tuning, definitely do some timing every once in a while when things are like, wow, this is kind of funky. Like lead vocals sometimes. That's my biggest thing is when lead vocals are not in the pocket. Mm. That's the one of the things that I'll do. Like, you know what? I'll spend an extra 45 minutes here. Let me make this vocal really, make the vocal feel good, make the track feel better. That's the biggest change I could do is just to get that voice in the pocket. And a lot of times people are just way ahead of the beat and aren't really in it. So that's what I'll do. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I have a shelf full of CDs that I've been kind of going back through and listening to stuff. Obviously, I can get it on streaming, but it's interesting just to put it on because it forces me to listen to the whole record because I can't find right. the, the remote to the CD. It's around here somewhere. <laughs> and what I think years ago as a player, before I was an engineer and, and I was a drummer, all of my focus was like focused on what drummers were doing. And then now where I'm at, at this point in my life, I put a CD on, like I put the first Alice in Chains record on and that comes on and I listen to that thing and it just blows my mind what a presence Lane Staley was as a singer. Cause you're talking about being in the pocket and that performance. And it's hard to find bands these days who are operating on low budgets and have put the time in to get those performances that are usually in the past have been coaxed out of a, a singer, say with a producer, yep. when they're doing stuff on their own, it's like, you just don't have that same level of, I don't want to say quality, but that same level of performance that you would otherwise. Do you, mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that to expand upon and exaggerate the point you're bringing up, and that is like years ago, when the technology was only like four or eight track recording, bands had to be able to perform the songs. And because what you got on record was pretty much them playing in a room. Mm -hmm. So what you heard on the record and what you heard live was like, well, it sounds like the band. Like I mixed some, did some remixes of some Queen stuff. And it's like, oh my God, on that song, Tie Your Mother Down, Freddie Mercury's singing live. He's singing with the band. You can hear when they punched in on a couple of phrases where the band goes away, but it's like, oh my God, he's singing in the room. I think Zeppelin, I think Black Sabbath, I think pick any band. It was more like a snapshot, like the band was in the recording studio, you took a snapshot, and that's a real representation of what they could do. Now, as the technology gets better, I think people don't have to be as, as accomplished in performing the songs, not, not writing. I'm not saying there's a difference in quality in writing, but in the performance of it, when you have someone who's been touring like 300 nights a year and they're singing, when they step up to the mic, like you can get a vocal take in three or four takes. It's like, oh my God, that sounds great. If someone's singing in their bedroom and they haven't been on tour or been on stage or commanded a stage or commanded an audience, it's just a different kind of vocal, you know, it's just different. And I think that it's almost like in those kind of singing, they're singing to the microphone, whereas people from the, the older era were singing past the microphone. They were projecting to a whole nother place. And there's a confidence, I think, in singers sometimes with, with, with the old stuff or, or, or musicianship. So not to sound like too much of an old guy, because there's a lot of really, really good contemporary music that sounds great and there's some really beautiful emotive singing all that stuff's true but i do think with the advent of pro tools i think musicianship has diminished and i know this from josh freeze who's like a session drummer i worked with a bunch of times and he goes he goes yeah pro tools he goes no need for those pesky chops you know <laughs> yeah because because you know and i've ever heard, heard people even like him like yeah, he plays through like one or two times like you got enough for pro tools it's like well yeah, I kind of want to just get a performance if we can. But, you know, people know that you just need to play like four bars of a verse and four bars of a chorus, and then we just chop it in there. And, and I think one of the problems with the modern music is I think once they sing one chorus, they do tend to kind of lay it in there, which makes sense. Whereas old singers, when they sang the first chorus and the last chorus, they sang it differently. Yeah. And I think there's a way that you can sing the last chorus either with more like you can start with the first chorus where you're a little bit not quite confident and maybe you're a little standing back a bit. And then by the third course, you're really leaning into it and performing it. Or you might sing it in a more wistful way on the third course where you go, oh my God, the singer sounds like he or she's kind of changed their perspective on the song by the third course. And I think those things, because of repetitive cutting and pasting, 
takes away from a performance, like a rise and fall. And the same thing with the, with the, the way a singer can start flat and sharp up to the note, and that sense of yearning, that kind of like tension and release, like, oh, there we go. That's really nice. Nowadays, you just tune everything and you miss that kind of how people get to the note is their style. And also, some people sing behind the beat. Some people sing on top of the beat. Some people sing flat or sharp, or whatever. That's their style. And with Pro Tools, you can pretty much erase all that stuff to get a perfect performance. And the perfect performance is not a great performance. You're from the Bay Area. You remember KFOG, the radio station? Yeah. yeah okay. KFOG was awesome. Yeah, it was past tense because it's no longer yeah, yeah. here. Well, there was a period of time in two different sections of my life where I would go in as a contractor to record live bands that were on tour that would stop in. They'd set up, I'd set up some mics and record them straight to a Pro Tools rig and mix it in real time so that the mix would then go on the air at like four o'clock. And wow. you, you talk about people that are touring and playing night after night that have that control. It always stunned me. Like mm -hmm. all the recording I would do with bands that weren't as experienced versus this experience, it was just like, you know, whether it's Florence and the Machine or The Fix or Robert Cray or, mm -hmm. you know, Steve Earle, they step up and they just command and they just do yes. it. And you're like, how can I screw this up? Like everybody's playing really well. Yep. I think in those moments, you're merely capturing the moment as opposed to creating it. That's the yeah. biggest difference. Is you're just like, there it is. Yeah, that's the thing going back to what you know I talked about early on and maybe even before you started recording this podcast. And that was during that time in whatever, it was 2015, Will and I were recording stuff live in the studio here. Yeah, yeah. Of bands playing live. And our whole thing was this. No overdubs, no fixes. You're playing live. You could do three or four takes. So we'll pick the best take. And Will and I would look at each other while recording these people. It was such a thrill. It was such a thrill because there they were. They're playing everything. They were singing all the leads and the background vocals, playing everything live. And there's a palpable energy go, oh my God. And you know, even now I listen back to some of those performances. It sounds amazing. It sounds like a record and it's live. It's really, really a thrill. It really is. Do you still do live at Studio Deluxe? No, I haven't done it in a while because it didn't really seem to take off the way I was hoping it would. It takes a lot of effort to put those things together especially the early version where the drums were in the same room as the vocals. Mixing that stuff would take a couple days because I would have to ride the background vocal mics. Like when someone's going to sing, I'd write it up, then I have to pull it down because just the drum spill was so tremendous. So I end up building a drum booth for subsequent recordings. The last one I did was with Hoobastank, which we never released, actually. The band decided they weren't going to release it, but it sounds really, really good when people can really play. So I, I miss those days. It's amazing. I had an eye-opening experience when I had the Coast Recorders building, when I was in control of that. And Keith Urban came in for this iTunes exclusive thing. And Justin Niebank came from Nashville to record it. And they got everything set up and the band's playing. And I walk in the room. I had been out of the control room for a while. And I come back into the control room and I'm listening. I'm like, oh my God, that sounds great. What a great mix. And then I thought I was listening to a playback mix that Justin had assembled. And I turned to look out the window in the live room and I was like, oh my God, this is happening right this second. And it sounds like a record right this second. Oh, and, yeah. and it just, that was one of those light bulb moments. Yeah. I've done, I had that with the Paul Westerberg recording his solo record where it's live. Like there it is. They, they play everything. And it was like, oh yeah, I remember this one song. 
it's called things. It was the second take. And it's just like drums, bass and guitar and vocal done. Huh. But you could feel like the band rising and falling in, in an ideal situation, the drums and bass and everyone's listening to the singer. And if, if they're really intuitive, they can lean in and either marshal up some energy to have the courses step up or pull back like on a quiet verse three, like a breakdown verse three, you just kind of play really quietly and, and sense what the singer's going to say or do. Then you can come crashing back in. There's so many things that with a, what a real band can do when they pay attention to the singer. And the best mixes, the best everything is really about serving the vocalist. And all the best arrangements, the best recordings are just getting that vocalist to be the crown jewel on this amazing performance. And those are the moments that are just phenomenal. Like you say, you've, you've heard it when people are playing live. It's like, oh my God. Yeah, it's Unbelievable. I want to transition a bit and talk about Studio Deluxe and talk about the economics of it. You know, you talked about keeping your overhead low and you talk about having just exactly what you need to make records and not getting too excessive. Talk to me about how you've arrived at that position after all these years. Did you go through periods where you're like thinking, oh, I've got to have all this extra stuff and buy extra mics, extra compressors, et cetera? Or is this something that you've practiced throughout your career? Let's see, let's see if I can make a long story relatively short. Probably 25 years ago, I had a studio in the Oceanway building. I had a studio there because I was renting it out. I had my own 24-track tape machine. And I had like about $70,000 in microphones. I mean, I had a couple of C24s. I had M49s. I had eight U67s. I mean, I had beautiful Telefunken U47. I mean, I had a lot of money in microphones. And I just remember it just seemed like there was a lot of money invested and I just couldn't rent the room for that much. And I remember going, if I just rented two of these microphones from a rental place, it would be more than I'm renting my entire room for. And it just seemed a little bit like, well, that doesn't make any sense. So anyway, I got rid of that stuff and became just freelance and just working at studios. So I did that. And then I remember there was a couple of projects where my manager was talking to me about the budgets. And I remember we'd go through it like, you know, once we factored in like studio time and engineer and all this kind of stuff. And it was like, there's no money left for producer. It just got to be like, this is getting kind of skinny. And this is with record labels. Mm. And I remember my manager said, you should really build your own studio. And I was like, I don't want to have a studio. I, I, I'm done having studios. And he said, listen, if you have your own studio, you know you'll get paid as a producer and a mixer because you don't have to spend five $750 a day paying for studio time. So I said, okay. So I reluctantly got this space. The space we're in right now was a former rehearsal room right across from Sound City Studios. And this is where they used to rehearse. It was called Full Blast. And I came in here. It was a big room with a bathroom. And I ended up renting it very inexpensively because I paid for all the build out. And so I built this thing out with my friend Jeff. And I've been here. And it was really an idea so that I would always get paid as a producer. In my studio, I can rent for really cheaply per day or just fold it into my fees. And so it's just like very, very, very lean. I've got Neve Mike Pre's and I've got Quad 8s and I've got the 1176s and a good mic selection, but it's nothing too much because honestly, you don't need a lot to make a great record. You really don't. And I I have always maintained, and I know this is anathema for some people, is that the gear is a very small portion of making great records. Mm. I truly believe that 85% of the sound and everything comes from vocal cords and fingertips And if I'm lucky, I can add 15 or 20% of that. And all I can do is make sure I don't screw things up. But I really think that a compelling song, well-recorded, is going to trump all kinds of things. And I can go down the list of things like Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, recorded on ADATS, with digital distortion on her vocal, sold 15 million records when it debuted. 
Civilians don't care about that crap. They just want to be moved. And you can even argue, like, as much as people don't like MP3s, it's like, all that sound comes out of an MP3, it's still moving people. They're still getting off on it. You know what I mean? And and so, you know, I've got good guitars. I've got good amplifiers. I've got good microphones. I just don't have a lot of stuff. I also don't have a big mixing board. I keep things very, very lean because a great song well-performed is going to do it. I've had, like, OAR song Shattered, their biggest one of their biggest selling songs and had a lot of radio play. It was recorded on an MXL 990 microphone. That's like a $100 microphone. Hmm. Because when we did the shootout with all the microphones, that one just sounded the best. And here's a song that's mixed by Chris Algae on the radio, everything like that. Sounds great. Nobody knows that it was a cheap-ass microphone. Look at Motown recording. That was done in a little room. Not that impressive to a lot of people. Bono sang on an SM58 for the first three U2 records. Handheld 58 those songs still move people. So I know that, again, people people get upset about hearing when I say the gear is not as important. It is to an extent, but I just think that it's all about the vibe of a singer, the vibe of the band, what they're singing, what they're playing, and does it move people? And I think that's the most important thing above and beyond everything. And we can make great records with very, very, very little gear. Look at people making records on their computers in their bedrooms. I mean, look at Billie Eilish. That stuff was done with probably the least amount of recording equipment in the known universe, huge hit. And so I, I do think that it's really about intention. I think it's about moving people. I think it's about emotions. I think it's about connecting people with lyrics. For me, that's most of it. Do you think that there are great differences going off this topic? Let's say you have a new singer or new artist, doesn't matter if it's a singer or not, but new band versus a band that's been around for a long time. And right. the band that's been around for a long time has had some success and they have certain expectations. So do you think that the studio space itself plays a major part in that for either situation? Well, I mean, I think the studio space does play a large part in it. That's why my studio is set up the way it is, which is, I always call it basically a large living room with instruments. And my whole idea, even though I have money invested in good equipment, is to create a space where people don't feel like they're under a microscope and they don't feel like money is going out the door very, very quickly. Like when you're in a big expensive room and, you know, I've had people stand in front of the mic in front of the monitors with a microphone and just sing the song, whatever it takes to get a great performance. So for me, you know, I have this space that's here. I'll just, you know, like I've got, you know, got a rack of, those are some of the amplifiers I have, but I have a whole nother room. I've got equipment here. I've got gear. So I have the stuff that you need, but it's mainly a relatively nice room where you can just sit, and hang out, you know, it's yeah. just like, it's a, it's a place of good vibes. And I think that's the most important thing where people can just walk in and just be relaxed. And I think that for me, ideally you want everybody to feel like they're having a good time and almost by accident, they end up making a great recording. And that's what I really try to do with people. And I know that this is sometimes will bite me on the butt because sometimes I'll make records and people go, you just kind of sat there and like, you really didn't really do anything. And look, we, we can do this ourselves. Like, well, you can do it yourself, but what you didn't pay attention to is how I changed the arrangements and I made suggestions very, very quietly. And we did a lot of changes. And the, the difference is I don't go as a producer, go, that was my idea. That was my idea there. Remember when I said this? I don't do that. I always do things where I plant the seed because if the singer or the band thinks it's their idea, then they're going to be more open to trying it. And so sometimes I'll do all this stuff behind the scenes without anybody even noticing that I'm quietly just maneuvering and trying to get things happening. And so it seems like I'm just kind of like hanging out, but this is almost 
40 years of experience and success. And so what I'm doing is very, just very, very quiet and, and under the radar stuff. It's very covert. It's almost like yeah. marketing in some respects where, you know, color choices or packaging or whatever, you yeah. are marketing ideas to the band without them even realizing it. Absolutely. That's very much what it is. And when I work with singers, we start singing and I can tell they're kind of going through it. But then I'll say things like, hey, tell me why you wrote this song. And it's really interesting because the take or two after that are the ones that have more resonance because all of a sudden they remember and they start singing it. And then I'll say things like, yeah, you know, we got the vocal. Don't even worry about it. I go, hey, why don't you just do one where you, I call it the Taking Liberties track. I go, just we'll do a couple of passes. Honestly, I don't care if you get the right lyrics. I don't even care if you get the right melody. I just want you just to kind of just let it out. Sometimes you get gems that way. And then I'll say things like, hey, you want to have something to drink or smoke a little weed or whatever you want to do, take an edible. And all this is just to quietly sneak up on those moments where the artist is unguarded and it comes out and, and the real true emotion comes out. Not a reading of it, not a narration, but the real emotion. And that, that to me is what production is all about, is really uncovering things that get in the way of the true meaning. And I always maintain that music is just the medium to get the emotion across. If we were into sculpting, we would sculpt. If we were painters, if we were dancers, we would dance. And if we could just connect our brains to all the listeners, we would just do it. We just kind of hardwire, like, here's the emotion, they'd get it. But we have to use music as a, as a conduit to express things. And oftentimes, it's things that guys can't really express. They can't talk about it, but they can sing about it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, to me, it's all about just tiptoeing up to that moment of creation or that moment of realization where the emotion comes out in its most purest form. That's what it's all about for me. And that's why the, the the room is set up in such a way that it feels kind of like unassuming. It doesn't feel like a big, big room. It's just kind of like, a, oh, it's a kind of a cool place to hang out. Let's hang out and see what happens. And that's really what it's all about, where I want people to walk out like, oh my God, we had a couple of fun months, man. You know, we played some stuff. We had some good food. And like, oh my, look at this. We made a record. Like, that's kind of what I, I want to have happen. But even though there's a lot of work behind it, there's a tremendous amount of work. And every night when I'm working with a band, like the, the night before making starting a record, I'm up all night like, oh my God, I hope I don't blow it. I hope I'm additive. I don't hope I hope I don't ruin things for them. And there are nights when I go home where we're all not sure of a, of a song and I have to like go home and say, everyone, hey, it's going to be fine tomorrow. And then I'm at night like, okay, what are we going to do? And I have to go through the lyrics again and try some of the arrangement ideas and be prepared the next day to kind of just seem like it's off the cuff. Like, hey, what if we tried this other idea over here? You know, but it's, I've been really kind of wrestling with it. So mm. there's a lot of stuff behind the curtain. Just a lot of hidden, diligent, diligent, very, very specific work that comes off as being laissez-faire and easy, but it's just a tremendous amount of really hard work sometimes. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you, as I mentioned before, you're from the Bay Area, and you made a decision years ago to leave the Bay Area and go to Los Angeles. Do you think things would have been different for you had you stayed in the Bay Area? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, I mean, the reason I left the Bay Area, because the Bay Area was my home, and it still feels like my home. That's where my formative years were, and that's where I started recording and things like that. But I got to a point where I kept making demos for bands that would get signed, and then I wouldn't do the record. And this was one band in particular that got signed to Arista Records, and they got signed. They go, great. Hey, Maddie, you're going to produce the record. Like, all right, woohoo. And in fact, this is a, I think it's a Tim Palmer project. So I was going to produce it. 
And then they go, oh, well, the, the label wants to hire this guy, Tim Palmer. He's going to produce it. But you can engineer it. Like, oh, oh great. Well, I just want to be part of the team. Oh, well, Tim Palmer's got his own engineer, so you're not going to work on the record. So that just happens to be one of those moments where I kept doing things that would bands would get signed and I wouldn't get to do it. And I finally said, look, I'm either going to get out of the business or I'm going to go to LA and really try to make a stab at this and try to really see what I can do. And so I came down here and I worked as a staff. I had a job as a staff A&R and producer for Slash Records. And so I came down here. Honestly, I came to LA thinking I would be here for two years, make a name and move back to the Bay Area. That was my intention. I, I, I really thought I'd be here for a very limited amount of time. And I think I've been down here now for like 35 years now. You know? hmm. And it was supposed to be a two-year trek And because I, I really wanted to get back to the Bay Area. But the fact of the matter is that whether people want to admit it or not, LA is probably the preeminent best city to make a record in. And the reason I say that is because I've worked, obviously, in San Francisco, worked in Vancouver, worked in Nashville, worked in New York, worked in Toronto, worked everywhere. But the thing that sets LA apart is that if you go, hey, I want to use that guitar chord that Hendrix used at Woodstock, there's three guys who will knock on your door. Here's the chord. You know what I mean? Or they'll find it. Like if you want the musicians or if you want the equipment, you know, I would call guys, hey, do you have this certain pedal that was made only for like six months back in the 40s? Oh yeah, we got that. And I remember being really stymied by stuff in New York where people couldn't find stuff and we couldn't rent stuff, couldn't find things. The Bay Area worked at studios where they're very laissez-faire. We're like, like making Faith No More's Angel Dust record where I worked at, at Coast. At Coast, right. Here I'm, I'm, I'm the producer. I'm also engineering. Our assistant engineer wasn't that interested, so he wasn't around. And we had our own phone. I was answering the phones and producing and mixing and recording and answering the phone and like, hey, can you guys uh, send this FedEx to LA? Oh, uh, we don't have an account. Do you have any money or something? Like, really? You guys, you, you know, I mean, dumb stuff like that. It's like, you guys have got to support us better than this, man. I mean, seriously, I worked my ass off on that record because they didn't know how to do the peripheral support, how to make it so that when I'm in the room, I didn't have to think about all this other stuff. But all I did was answer phones and try to take care of my own FedEx stuff. It's like, you know what? You guys don't know how to make records up there. And so in LA, there's like just a handful of studios, a handful of people, musicians, everything. Like I can make records here. And that's, I know it's, anyway, it's just the opinion I came to after working here. And here's another thing. I would notice the difference coming from the Bay Area down to LA. In LA, when I came here, people don't move to LA because it's a beautiful place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the Bay Area. <laughs> You know, in the bear, you want to live in the bear. It's beautiful. There's the bay. It's great. You know, we can go across the bridge. We can sail. Woohoo. But LA, people come to LA to get the job done or to reinvent themselves or whatever it takes. And to take the story on a whole nother tangent, there was a big earthquake up in the Bay Area. Do you remember there was a, there was a big earthquake? 1989. Yes. 89. Bridges fall, fell down. Things. It took like a decade to fix a bunch of crap. LA, we had an earthquake. That shit was fixed within a couple of years. I mean, they rebuilt stuff fast. And I, and I know I'm exaggerating to a point, but I just know that I could get stuff done down here. And I just got to a point where I just had to be where people were ready to step up and go like, yeah, we'll do it. What do you need? We're here, you know? And I just had too many instances where, where it was San Francisco or New York, you know, it's like people couldn't get stuff. It was like, dude, we just need this thing. Can you get it? No, we go, oh, yeah, we can get that in three or four days. Oh yeah, well, that's not going to work for me. Anyway. No, I mean, you're not exaggerating, especially when it comes to the second portion of the Bay Bridge in the Bay Area. I mean, I think it took, I can't even remember. I mean, it may have been 20 years to get that second half completely fixed. Yes. 
And it's just like, exactly. are you are you kidding me? But 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 you're you're right. And so I because I'm from the Bay Area, and that's really kind of where my heart is. That's my home. And I remember moving down here when we had our earthquake. There were a couple of freeway chunks that were repaired within two years. I mean, like big ones that were like four stories fell down. They built it up. And I remember that it was it was it was a long time for the Bay Area to fix a certain freeways. And to me. I know this is a huge exaggeration, but I think that was a real microcosm of working in LA in studios. And it just, to me, it was just a night and day difference where people were just eager to get, I don't know if it was competitive or what it was, but they were just like eager to get shit done. Like, what do you need? We'll do this. And every studio in the Bay Area was just kind of like, yeah, we'll get that done. Or yeah, it, you know, we'll, we'll fix that tomorrow. And LA was just like, yeah, we got to tech on it. We'll do that right now. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. So anyway. Yeah. Well, because I mean, and I'm sure, I'm sure those from Nashville are listening going, I beg to differ. But it's interesting. I'm trying to spend more time down in LA and go down there and hang out. And I have to admit, I'm not really thrilled with LA in itself, but the people, they want to do stuff. They want to make stuff happen. And I really enjoy that about being down there. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Look, I, I think the only reason to move to LA really is because you want to get into movies or you want to get into music Yeah, because it's a hub. And I know from talking to a number of producer managers that there was a big exodus from New York to LA. I know that a lot of studios kind of closed down. The real music making center, from what I understand, has moved to LA. And I just think that people who are here, you come here because you want to reinvent yourself or really establish yourself. And I think that's it because you don't come here for the scenery. You don't come here to chill out. It's just it's just a different vibe. And, and it, that's all I can say about it. And anyway, that's all I can say about it. I just over years I've had experiences that just keep making me come back here. And it's like, oh, and look, I didn't I didn't want to live in LA for this many years. I really didn't. Right. It never dawned on me to be here for more than two years because I love the Bay Area and I just want to get in and get out. I really didn't want to do it. But once I got in here, I go, oh, okay, I get it. I see what you guys are doing. Yeah. And I was like, well, here I am, you know, because I, I, I want to make records. And and by the way, being in LA meant that if someone was coming through town and if a uh, AR person said, Hey, so and so's coming through town. Can you meet him for dinner or meet him for a drink? It's like, oh hell yeah, 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 I'll do that. And the Bay Area just felt like that—that that just wasn't happening for me because I was—I don't know—it just wasn't happening. Whereas I came to LA and label people saw me here. They saw me move down here. They saw that I was eager and like, can you meet so and so? Hell yeah! I remember I moved to LA. I moved down on January fourth, and on January tenth, it was a Sunday. It was my birthday, and I was in the studio mixing a Bo Dean's record. Oh. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be in the studio on a Sunday. I didn't want to be in the studio on my birthday. But man, I was in LA. It's like you want me to work on my birthday. It's a Sunday. Hell yeah! The the band wants me to mix it. I'm gonna do it. You know what I mean? I think I've had many opportunities. I've just been here, eager, ready to roll in there. You know, it's like yeah. I was working with Train on their first record at my studio, and my manager called me and said, "You want to work with REM?" I go, "That sounds great." He goes, "How about tonight at ten o'clock at night?" Like, oh, oh my god, really? So I worked with. Train all day long, went home and showered. So my body thought I was awake, went to Sunset Sound at 10 o'clock at night and worked with REM. This is on a Sunday night, by the way, until Monday morning where I had to turn the mix in at eight o'clock in the morning for the Batman soundtrack. I, I just wanted to work. You know, where's the action? I want to work. Otherwise, I'll go do something else. There's definitely action down there for sure or there where you're at. Yeah, yeah. To conclude the website for the studio, is that where you kind of maintain all of your your web presence? Actually, no, you have Wizard Wallace 
right? Yeah, I think I've got Wizard Wallace on Instagram. I don't know. I honestly, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to that stuff, which is not a good idea. Will Kennedy, he's the one who does all the stuff on Instagram. He, he's got the website. We, we have stuff up on Facebook. So Will really does that. I'm really not good at that, which is bad. Well, that's okay. <laughs> I'll talk to Will. And amongst the three of us, we'll assemble some links for the audience that we'll put in the show yeah. notes so they have some stuff to check out. And to conclude also, we failed to mention the relationship you have with Will mm-hmm. in the studio, it seems like that's become a very important part of your life. Oh my goodness, yes. You know, I'm glad you brought this up. This is really, really important. So I started working with Will. I hired him to engineer a bunch of records like about 12 years ago, I guess, 11 or 12 years ago. So we worked on a bunch of records together. And then as the budgets reduced, I couldn't hire people like him. I had this guy, Paul Figueroa. I had Pete Martinez. They were my engineer guys. And after a while, the budgets got so small that I couldn't afford to hire anybody. So I just started engineering again by myself, which unfortunately reminded me of starting when my A-track days where I produced and engineered. And after hiring engineers, I had to come back to engineering again, which was really frustrating, but I could do it. So that was no problem. So the whole Atmos thing came about where Will and I were batting around the idea about, should we open up an Atmos studio or not? What do you think? And so we dove in together. Will made all the calculations. I did the building. I built the... I've got the cloud for the speakers and all the stuff. And so the nice thing about working with Will is that he and I are really, really well matched. We both have something that the other guy could use. Mm. Will is really good at hitting the numbers. He's really detailed oriented. He has read all the manuals backwards and forwards. He knows all the computer gear. He can speak much more eloquently about all the ammo stuff into all the nuances and the nitty gritty. Will has got that stuff in spades and I don't have that. I'm pretty oblivious sometimes about a lot of technological things. And so he does that. And I'm really good at kind of getting this out to the record labels, generating the work. I'm the guy who's like, hey, I got this. We got this gig. We got that gig. And so we really fill in for each other very, very nicely. And honestly, I really couldn't do this without Will. We work very, very well in tandem together. And we both bring something important to the table. And I'm, I'm super happy that you know he and I work so well together and are very complimentary in our abilities and what we bring to the table. So Will Kennedy has been awesome. I mean, just working with him has been super great. Well, and as a result, you guys have, I think you've surpassed like 60 Atmos mixes together. Oh, uh, I think we're past 75 now. We, and we're, oh. we got three albums stacked up right now. Right now we're deluged with work. Wow. That's fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's to the point where I mean, I like last night worked till like 10 or 10.30 at night and then Will starts in the morning and, and then we're going to work through the weekend because we're just, we're really behind. So we've been working through long days because we have deadlines to adhere to. So it's, the good news is that we have a lot of work. The bad news is that, man, we have a lot of work. We have a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Matt, it's great to have you back on. I really appreciate your time yeah. and love hanging out with you when I'm down there and I'll, I'll be back again. Absolutely. And enjoy our Dolby Atmos Mixers Network. You talk about what you bring to the table between you and Will. It's very clear to me in our group. You're really good at gathering people and, yes. and letting everybody be heard. That's super obvious to me in that group, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, my whole idea for that thing is that it's very decentralized. I mean, I think myself and Will, we're kind of like the ringleaders. We like to bring people together, but there's no like head or no boss. It's like, yeah, we provide a space, people show up, and it's really awesome. It's really fantastic, very symbiotic and things like that. Yeah, it really is. Well, thanks again, and can't wait to see you in person again. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you once again. I'm so glad that we got to do this again. It's amazing. It's been seven years. but Can't believe it. 
Yeah, I'm really uh, honored and thrilled that we could talk about stuff. And it's also great having you part of our team. That's really, really, really cool. So, well, thank you. you. Know, our Atmos, our Atmos network. It's just, as you probably well have felt this, it's the first time in at least a decade where most of us feel like there's a sense of community, there's a camaraderie. And even though we all are kind of competitors with one another, we are really, really supportive. Everybody's like, hey, I don't know how to do this. That guy's like, this is how you do it. It reminds me of the good old days where we used to run into people in the studios and go, hey, what are you working on? And it's so beautiful. I'm really, really honored to be part of the group. And everyone's just so open. Everyone's like, what do you need? Hey, the sense of community I have not felt in at least 15 years before this Atmos network. It's really been great. Yeah. And I always encourage people on this show to try to form their own groups of audio professionals to network with one another, no matter where you are in the world. And I think that the success that we've had with our group, I think is easily, you know, you could recreate that if you just like reach out to other audio professionals, which is, is what's happened in our situation. So yeah, yeah. don't sit in your studio all day and not talk to other engineers. It's, 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 it's not good. Yes. You're right. You're right. All right, Matt. Well, we'll chat with you later. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Matt. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Matt Wallace here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Just a reminder to stop by workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips. You can get the 15 tips to help you survive as an audio professional. That includes tips derived from interviews with Andrew Sheps, Jack Indino, Eric Valentine, and Steve Albini. Yeah, a lot of good stuff in there for you to check out. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips to check it out. Want to thank the crew, of course, ever so grateful to Anne-Marie Plo on her editing skills, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and of course, Chuck Smith. What can you say? It's Chuck, right? Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.